Hello again, it's the Home Bible Study Podcast from Culloden Christian Assembly. Um, we're looking at a new subject over the next number of, of podcasts, a letter to the family. Um, we're looking at studies in First John. Now, this is a wonderful little book, and I'm uh, really looking forward to looking at it again. Uh, I'm Andrew, your host, and we trust that as we look at God's Word together, we might be blessed, as we already have been in our first Home Bible Study uh, of this series. So thank you for joining us. I trust it'll be a blessing to you. So just looking at this little letter um, together, the first thing we'll do is we'll commit ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you that we can call you Father. We think of a world that's full of confusion, a world which is full of confusion about family. And yet our Father, we thank you that we're not only uh, able to build uh, little families for your glory in this world. But our Father, we belong to the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the new birth that has changed us. We thank you for um, the opportunity that we have now of uh, thinking about this little letter uh, that John wrote to the family of God. We pray that we might be able to communicate it in a way that's a blessing to those who listen. And we pray, our Father, that we might uh, gain something for our own souls as well. We commit ourselves to you in the Lord's name. Amen. A letter to the family studies in First John. If you need the handout, uh, please just contact me in uh, andwilliamson01 at yahoo.co.uk. We're just getting it started uh, with this lovely little book. I thought I would give one or two um, guidelines that might help us to understand it uh, better. The author, as pretty much all conservative scholars will agree, uh, was the Apostle John. He shows his hand clearly throughout First John. His writing style isn't that different from the Gospel. And um, we see th throughout John's writings so, some very pe interesting peculiarities to his writing. Um, if we were looking at the, the whole of John's writings for a moment, uh, in John's gospel, we would find out that it's written mainly to the world to produce faith. You remember John 20 and 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, of course, the order in that is really important to understand. It is by believing that you have life. You sometimes um, some very good and helpful scholars will get that the wrong way around and think that you need to have life to believe. But in the scripture, it says clearly that it's by believing that you have life. Now, obviously, God works in your life to bring you to that point of faith. I'm not doubting that for a minute, but you don't actually have life, eternal life before believing. And so the whole of John's gospel is written with this in view that the people who read it will think about the great signs of John's gospel for example and will be convinced that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and and through that not just head faith but true uh, dependence in Christ that they might have life in his name so you could say that it was written to the world to produce faith that they might have eternal life. Then we could say John's first letter was written to the family. 
the family of God. We'll see this more clearly as we go through. Uh, John writes to them and he, he call them things like little children in chapter two. He's writing mainly to the family of God. Those who know God as their, their father through faith in Christ. Those who have been brought into this beautiful relationship. You'll remember at the end of John chapter 20, uh, I think it's maybe in 21, uh, we, we read those beautiful words uh, where the Lord Jesus speaks to his own, about his own, and he says, uh, I ascend unto you, my father and your father and my God and your God. And the whole purpose of him coming was to reveal the father to us. You remember even from chapter one of John's gospel that is brought out. He's the one who is the only begotten son who has declared and, and explained God to us. So that's John's gospel and how it links into John's uh, first letter. It's written to the family, those who have placed faith in Christ, those at least initially who have professed faith in Christ. And it was to assure the true believers that they had eternal life so that they might live in the joy of it. See First John chapter 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So having assurance of eternal life is a great confidence builder in the Christian pathway. It's one of the most blessed things that can happen to someone. Someone might have clung to Christ uh, as a dying man uh, in salvation, and yet sadly not live in the good of that faith that they have exhibited initially. They might live in a kind of quandary of doubt. However, perfected faith, complete faith, not only looks to Christ for salvation, but also rests in assurance that Christ is able to keep us, to keep us safe. Uh, we'll think of a, a reference that might well say that those very words in 1 John chapter 5 uh, later in our studies. But you might ask, why is John so concerned about this issue? Well, the people that he was writing to, the, the, the Christians from, um, in the late first century, had had a, a rough experience recently. Many had stopped fellowshipping with them and, and had separated from them and had begun to believe different things about the Lord Jesus than they did. Gnosticism, this false teaching, had got a hold of them and they believed wrong things about the Lord Jesus. Well, we touch upon some of those things as we go through. And this had confused the younger Christians, I think especially, that, that John was writing to. And had left many questions in their head. Had they been real Christians? What, what should we believe? How can we be sure we have the real thing? These people walked alongside us and now they're away. John mentions this directly in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. Perhaps it's worth reading uh, that little passage together just now. This is what we read. Children, it's the last hour. And as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Listen to this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain, that they are all not of us. And so we can see that there's this 
conflict that has happened, this schism, this division that has happened among the professing Christians. And John is going to write to clear the air. And he does that with great clarity, uh, using these short, absolute statements that you could suspect or expect John would use. He, he uses great opposites, antitheses, light versus darkness, love versus hatred, life versus death. And he really is seeking to clarify things for the children in a confusing world. Now, I'm not even mentioned a beautiful parallel that you can make between the upper room ministry and John's gospel. But more of that in our second study. Um, just keep that in the back of your mind. The upper room ministry, you remember the Lord Jesus when he takes his own uh, and, and the words that were used there are very similar to what we have many times in, in the uh, first epistle of John. Now, John will show several litmus tests of eternal life throughout this epistle. Briefly, there are three main tests and they come up again and again. I'm telling you them now so that when they flag up, you'll you'll maybe recognize what test um, is being applied. There's what we might call the moral test. The test of walking in the light, walking in righteousness, uh, living in a, a way that is consistent with being associated with a God who is light, for instance. And that will come up again and again. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So that's a, one of the tests for eternal life. What about the social test? Not so much the moral test, the social test. This is how I love my brother in Christ. In fact, he says on one occasion, if, if I don't love my brother who I can see, how can I profess to love a God who I have never seen. So that's a social test. And then there's the doctrinal test. You'll say in chapter four, verse six, that we are of God, little children, the apostles, we are of God. And whoever is of God hears us, listens to the apostles, accepts the apostles' doctrine. One of the great fundamental uh, convictions that we can have that someone is truly uh, truly belongs to the Lord is that they are orthodox they with regard to their belief about Christ as it comes from the apostles okay so the moral test the social test the doctrinal test John is pointing out the characteristics that were are to mark or should mark not only should mark but do mark a believer's life and he understands we can prosper and develop these virtues and feel in them at times but he's speaking about the general bent of the life of a christian they're, they're the type of people that love one another they're the type of people that listen to the apostles uh, teachings they're the type of people who walk in righteousness so believers can know that they truly had eternal life and people who had withdrawn from the christian community that they were not right with God if they fail these tests. Now, there's interesting patterns that we will see as we go through First John, and we must get to the text. Um, God is light is really seen stamped across the first few chapters. Well, chapter one and two for, for definite, but even maybe chapter three as well. And then we have God is love as a statement that's made uh, in chapter four. 
Uh, and then by the time we come to the end of chapter five, we have this statement, God is life. And so we have light and love and life. These are the great characteristics of the family of God and the nature of the father, the God who is light and love and life. It will be seen in the family that he that, that he belong or that belong to him. The letter itself has a quite an unusual structure. We'll get into that in other weeks. I want to just focus in on chapter one uh, and the message from the apostles in this first part um, of of our, our studies in First John. So we have. Um, let me see. Just try and get this up. <clears throat> chapter one really divides into two main paragraphs and i've called it generally the message from the apostles we'll think about that later but the first four verses is an introductory message concerning the word of life you'll see that from looking at verse number um, three as, as paul was writing we'll see it in a minute that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you may have fellowship with us. So he is communicating a message that he has received. So this is a message, the introductory message. And I take it this introductory message is for the whole book. Uh, and it's concerning the word of life. We'll think about that in a minute. And so the first introductory message is concerning the word of life. And I'm going to suggest that the goal of this message being transmitted is the enjoyment of fellowship with the apostles. That comes out really clearly uh, in verse number three. So that you may have fellowship with us. Uh, we are writing these things that our joy may be complete and so on. The enjoyment of fellowship with the apostles. Um, and then in the second section of, of chapter one, from verse five to ten, um, we have what I would term the main message of chapter one. And that is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And what he's going to say and the goal he has for giving this message is to put to the test the profession of those who claim to be in the family of God. Now, this will become clear, I think, as we go down. If we say, he says three times, if we say, if we say these are claims that are being made about people's relationship with God. Can we test those claims? Are they valid claims? Can we be wise about them? Uh, and so he'll he'll make it clear that um, there are evidences that are show that we are in fellowship with God or not. So let's read First uh, John chapter one together, and then we'll think about uh, it in a little bit more detail. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that god is light and in him is no darkness at all 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Amen. So first of all, we have this introductory message, that which was from the beginning. What beginning is John speaking about? That's the first question we've asked. It was the first question that Eva asked as well as we were thinking about this. What, what beginning do we have here? We turn backwards to John's gospel and it begins quite similarly. In the beginning was the word. It, it has this idea of beginning and has an idea of word. But is it the same beginning that's being spoken of? Well, if we were to go to John's gospel, I think it would be quite clear that he was pushing the minds of his audiences right back to the very beginning of time and space and anything that had a beginning. When it began, the word already was. He's speaking about the eternality of the word there. But that's not what we have here. That which was not in the beginning, even the way it's framed, it's not he that was in the beginning or he who was in the beginning. It's that which was in the beginning. But he's going to say we've we've handled we've handled that thing and, and and it's concerning the word of life. It's it's all that we know about the word of life and who he is. And we'll come to that in a minute. But if we understand that false teaching has just arisen in the church, it helps us to understand what is happening here. Because when we come to uh, chapter two again, just for a little minute. And look at verse number seven, for instance. John writes to them. Now, think this is 50 years, at least after Christ. So 50 years have passed since the death of the Lord Jesus, at least, or probably 60. Beloved, verse seven, I am writing no new commandment to you, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. From the beginning. And look at verse number 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Verse 14. Uh, fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. And what he's doing is he's calling him away from this new uh, false teaching that is in being introduced, this anti-apostolic message. And he is pulling them back to the revelation that happened at the beginning. What beginning? I take it to the beginning in the chapter and um, first chapter and most of the references to the beginning of first John and there's others you can go look at them. He is, he is really bringing to people's mind the thought of the beginning of the witness of the word of life. The one who explained life, eternal life and brought it into flesh and to us. And that is, of course, the person of the Lord Jesus. He is not only the word in John, and he's not only the word of God, Revelation 19. He is the word of life. Now, a word is a, the means in which we explain something. We explain through words. We, it, it's, it's 
That's how we reveal our heart. We use words. This is how we communicate. We use words. And so when the Lord Jesus is spoken of as the word, we know that it's something to do with communication. And here it's the communication of life, the word of life. And so what we have with this false teaching in the background, which I'm going to speak about in a wee minute, is something that is against and contradictory to the teaching that was given and received by and given by the apostles right at the beginning when the eternal life came in fleshed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think I'm going to have to press pause and then maybe rewind a little bit. And I want you to park your thoughts there on, on, on chapter one, verse one, just for a minute. Just to give a little bit of background as to what the false teaching appeared to be. And this comes out clearly throughout First John. But Gnosticism believed that everything that was material was somehow inherently evil. So in, material things are by some in some way bad, in some way evil. And so they had a problem because that was one of their cardinal um, finding truths, as it were, or truths is the wrong word to use, finding errors of, of their teaching. And because of that, they, they struggled with the idea of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down into flesh, became a true, real human being. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that was a big struggle to them. They, they couldn't understand how the eternal divine God, the, the pure God of eternity, could be found within a material body and part of the human race as it were so this they, they started to concoct theories around this and false uh, narratives around this and one of the narratives for instance was that well the, the christ must have somehow descended upon the man jesus after his baptism and left him before the cross something about something around that so we have a kind of way in which the christ spirit hovers over christ while he's here now that, that even the concept of the anointed the christ it is misunderstanding the the true the biblical way of of looking at the christ but it's important to get that idea that that's happening as well in the background so that which so when we remember that and then look back at this verse and try to read it again that which was from the beginning that message that we received and heard uh, of about that explanation of eternal life that we heard, that we seen with our eyes, we looked upon and touched with our hands. There's nothing intangible about the manifestation of the Lord Jesus. He wasn't some phantom. He wasn't some semi-human. Not at all. He was truly a man as we are, although not such a man as we are. He's pure, but he was as much a man as we are which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, this, this one who is the full expo exposition of life itself, of eternal life, the life was made manifest, he says, and we have seen it and we testify, uh, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested 
to us. Now, you see what's happening here? I hope you do. He's saying we are the ones that received that revelation and we have testified and proclaimed that to you. Now, who's the we? Who's the we in the verse? Well, the we in the verse quite clearly is the apostles. The apostles, those who have received this revelation about Jesus, those who speak authoritatively on that revelation. Now, here John is the last of the apostles probably that is alive by this stage from what we gather from history. And he is speaking with regard to the whole group of apostles, I take it. And he is speaking in an apostolic way. He's saying, we received this revelation. We touched him. We we handled him. We He was real. He was no phantom. You can't reduce this Christ to a phantom that hovered over the man Jesus or anything like it. Eternal life became tangible in a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are the ones that witnessed it. It also brings home to us the importance of apostolic authority, of coming back to the apostles' teaching. The Lord Jesus is called the Word, the Word of God, the Word of life. Of course, we've mentioned that. He explains and expounds true eternal life to us. Now, eternal life is not merely everlasting life in the sense that it, it it's longevity. It just keeps going on forever. Eternal life has to do with the whole nature of the life that comes from God, the nature of the life that is in the Godhead and has been communicated into our souls by the new birth. Verse, or sorry, yeah, verse three and four. John says that his goal was to incorporate his readers in a fellowship with the apostles through this message. He wants her joy to be complete. Let's look at this. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us. With who? Who's the us? Well, it must be the we. He's speaking about the collective group of apostles. They have a message. And if you're going to share with us in this life, if you're going to share with us, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be completed. And John uh, writes and, and, and what he wants for his readership is that they might be brought all brought into the good of this revelation that comes from God. Now, I take it very clearly in chapter one, and I'll explain it more in the second pod podcast, I think, that we're dealing with the professed family of God in chapter one. But from chapter two and from a particular point in chapter two, he is dealing with the actual family of God. He speaks directly to those who are truly born ones of God in chapter two. But in chapter one, he's going to, speak to those who claim to be part of the family. But he wants to bring all who claim to be part of the family in under the wonder of God's love and the enjoyment of God's love and into this fellowship that they have with the Father and Son. And so there is an appeal in chapter one. We might even say a gospel appeal. I think. He is calling them. He is calling them to 
agree with the revelation that the apostles received from God with regard to eternal life. I hope that makes sense uh, of this first message. Let's look at the second message just now. Really, I take it it's a bit like a, a Russian doll thing, you know, where you, you take the one layer off and, and we're looking at a, a smaller message within the confines of the message that we've already seen. The first four verses, I take it introductory to the whole uh, of the book, whereas this message is more specifically to the first section. This is a message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so if you can imagine that every father's nature is seen in the family the born ones he he passes his nature onto his children and, and so you'll see in in matthew chapter one for instance so and so begat uh the old version says begat and there's a sense in which the nature is passed from from father to children now think about that for a minute He's going to tell us something about God's nature. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you imagine a, a family home, this you, you can see a family home that is blazing with light. You can expect that. This, this family of God, it's a family of light. And of course, John uses light in contrast to darkness in a moral, in an ethical sense, you know. Light is all that is good and right and just and true and pure. Darkness is all that is evil and bad and 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 dark and sinful and so on and blinded as well. And so God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He says, now listen, this is a headline message that we got from him, from Christ, from the word of light. And we proclaim it to you. There's absolutely no inconsistencies in the nature and character of God. Now he's going to test the profession of people who claim to be in God's family with this truth that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is always consistent. There's no shadow of turning in him, it will tell us in James. He is light. There's no darkness. There's no back cupboards. There's nothing that's unseemly, unsavory, anything like that in the nature of God. And, and of course, John always does this. He appeals to nature. He'll speak about the Lord Jesus. He'll say, he is pure. In him is no sin. He'll say again and again, he is righteous. He likes to get down to, he boils things down to their very essence. That's the way John writes. And if we belong to God's family truly, we can expect to be enjoying something of God's light. In verse 6, we have a person claiming something about knowing God, but walking very differently. Look at verse number 6 for a minute. And you'll notice verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. If we say, if we say, if we say. This is what they're saying. They're saying in some way, I belong to God. I am in the family. That's the kind of overarching thing. They're saying, I'm, I, I'm part of God's chosen, part of God's people in some way. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
Now, what does he mean by this? Is he speaking about Christians who are just not walking right? Well, of course, Christians sometimes don't live correctly uh, and get tripped and stumbled uh, and, and some save with fear and so on. And, you know, Jude will speak about these kind of things. And, and there are some that are, are, are in a bad state of heart, spiritually speaking, would probably all be there at some level. Is that what he's talking about here? No, you see, because he's been talking about relationship with God and, and the apostles' truth. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, and this idea of walk is the word, uh, I believe, peripateo, which is the thought of the whole round of someone's life. Interesting, interesting uh, interruption by the children there. Back to the text. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Um, this is uh, something that's true of every unbeliever. They are walking in darkness. Their whole realm that they're in is, is darkness. And they don't practice the truth because they're saying we fellowship with him, but they're walking in darkness. Well, God is light. That's not consistent. We can't, it's not true. Okay. So, so what he's saying is he said, remember God's nature. And if someone says they have fellowship with him, it doesn't mean that they do have fellowship with him. It just means they're claiming it. And if their life is a life of constant, the whole bent of their life, the character of their life is a walk in darkness. Then we know that they're lying and not practicing the truth. But in contrast, who could he be speaking about now? But if we walk in the light. Now, he's speaking about the professing members of the family of God who walk in the light, those who are truly the Lord's, those who are walking in the light as he is in the light. You see, God is not only light, but because of the because of his nature, his inherent intrinsic ontology, to use a big word, but in his presence, there is light. He is in the light. And we are in that presence as well. We walk in the light. The general bent of our life is towards the light. We have fellowship with one another. So here he's saying, this is why we can have this bond between us. We are in this family and we're together and the apostles are with are with the rest of God's people in this bond now. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. His blood keeps us in the light. It doesn't say his blood cleansed us from all sin as a past truth. That is true. Upon conversion, we were cleansed. Other passages bring that out. We were purified. But what he's saying is that there's a, an abiding efficacy or an eternal efficacy of the blood of Christ. In other words, it's effective forever. And it keeps us in the light. He cleanses it cleanses us from all sin. Not from some sins, but all sin. Um, that's the thought in the end, verse number seven, I take it. Now he comes to another claim. If we say we have no sin. And then, of course, number 10. If we say we have not sinned. If we say we know sin, we're looking at the very root principle and saying, I don't have sin. Now, this would have been, I think, a problem in, in the among the Gnostics, because 
they had ways of feeling that they were initiated and brought into secret um sort of sacred secrets that they were part of a small company of knowing ones uh, and there were ways in which they dealt with the fact that they had a body themselves. We can imagine if the body is bad and sinful by its very nature and character. There's two ways that you can deal with that if you are trying to be uh, holy, as it were. It's just the spirit element of you is, is all pure, you might say. Well, and it doesn't really matter about the body. You can either mortify the body in the sense of um, asceticism, like monks would do. You can just kind of abuse your body in that way uh, and some did that or else you can just let your body do whatever your body does and you have the other extreme of license and licentiousness that happened among some of them and so there's these two extremes that that could happen with the uh, but but then if you were to speak to them, they say, well, I'm sure in here. I, you know, if you get down to the very authentic me right inside me, I'm I'm good. I'm pure. I'm good. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Of course, because the truth of the word of God has, has shown us that our, the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. That was written way before in the Old Testament. Now, notice the contrast, Ian, he says, now. Having dealt with the non-Christian, the, the professing member who's not really a Christian, he says, if we confess our sins, and that is the characteristic of a believer, they are the people who agree with God about our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, so again, he's making a wonderful contrast between those who claim to be in God's family and those who genuinely are in God's family, those who confess their sins, who acknowledge uh, their, their sinfulness before God, and he is faithful and just. He's faithful to the blood, and he is just because of the blood to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So then he comes to the last claim. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Of course, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament letters of Paul that have already been written by this stage, it's very clear in the New Testament that, that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have failed. We have sinned, every one of us. So if we say we have not sinned, if we are just saying that the, the, the actual practice of sin has never affected us, yeah, we're not sinners, really. I remember speaking to a man who told me I hadn't sinned for seven years. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, we're actually saying, well, God says I have sinned, but but have not. And so you can see what he's doing there. He's shining the light of God's presence upon those who say we are in God's family. We are part of God. We have fellowship with God. We are, we are not sinners. Those kind of people, those who profess some kind of religious attachment to God. But the true child of God, verse 7 and verse 9, what are they like? They're walking in the light. They're, they're, their life is characterized by goodness and purity. They have fellowship with one another in that light. And they know that they're kept in that light, not by their own goodness, but by the blood of Jesus who cleanses us from all sin. And if they're 
is any sins that are associated with them. The, the characteristic of a Christian is they are the ones who, right from the beginning when they trusted Christ, they confess their sins and they know he is faithful and just to forgive uh, and cleanse from all unrighteousness. So we might see even in that the, the progress the, uh, of sanctification in a believer's life. And, and so that's what we see, I take it, in verse 7 and verse number 9. So John is clarifying that the kind of nature and the kind of life that is in the true family of God. He's putting false claims to the test, and he's making vulnerable believers wise to false claims. Nobody out there is going to say, I am a false teacher, or I believe something that is false. No, they come along and they say something about truth and, and how they, what they have is the, the truth, and so we have got to be wise to this. Uh, and so John is calling us to examine claims in light of the nature and character of God. So just to finish, eternal life came tangibly to us in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't mystical. It's not some sort of um, Christ spirit that fell on Jesus and left him. This is real. This is true. The word was enfleshed, incarnate. We can share in the fellowship of this life if we accept the message of the apostles. Just because we make claims about things doesn't make them true. If we are truly in God's family, we will be manifesting that nature, God's nature to some degree. The only thing that keeps us in the light of God's presence, of course, is the blood of his son. And we receive forgiveness from the father as a result of agreeing with him with regard and with respect to our sense. And so I hope this study helps you to see a bit more clearly anyway uh, what we have in First John and chapter 1. Thank you. Next study, God willing, will be next week.